be it's in your name we pray. Amen. You be seated. I do not recommend doing this, but I did a deep dive into the life of Ted Bundy this week. Uh, the Wikipedia page uh, actually uh, chronologically lists his crimes, names his victims. And if you're not familiar with who Ted Bundy is, I would call him, in my mind, perhaps the most heinous. I understand that there's some, some competition for that, but he would use his charm and his charisma to lure women off of college campuses. The things, the violations against humanity that this man would ultimately confess to. Multiple murders. He was ultimately convicted and executed, uh, charged with 35 murders, though he only confessed to 29. They believe that there were more. There were many more crimes that this man committed, including the things that he would do with the bodies. I understand this is graphic, but to understand the crowd that is outside of his execution, we have to understand the monstrosity of this man. The crowd was almost a carnival atmosphere. They would hold signs up mocking him, saying, Ted, now you're dead. You're not going to need blankets where you're going. They laughed, they cheered as the hearse arrived, and as they took his body from the prison, there was an eruption of cheer and fireworks as his dead body was removed to be cremated. And I have to admit, as I'm reading the story of Ted Bundy, the fact that he had uh, killed and murdered, and, and I'm, I'm reading the names of these women as young as a 12-year-old child, he's caught in, the, in, in Colorado only to escape because he has more murdering to do. He escapes uh, custody uh, during investigation and, 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 and murders even more women, ultimately caught in Florida. As I, as I thought about and considered the crimes of this man, I started thinking that this electric chair was too much mercy for this man. I thought this man deserved every bit of the mocking that he received, every bit of the celebration of his death that he got. In fact, I wish he was stripped naked, paraded through town, whipped 40 times minus one, thorns driven into his head, a robe wrapped around him as he's mocked, carrying the, own, the instrument of his own death, the crowd celebrating, 
as he's lifted up to be an example of, of anyone who would ever dare to do something as heinous as he's done. I wish that's the way he died. That's the way that I feel. I'm confessing that's in my heart. I'm not, I'm not making commentary on capital punishment. Uh, I'm just saying that's what I feel. That's, those are the feelings that I felt. Justice inside of me says that dying in the way that he died didn't feel just and that I might have been in the crowd celebrating if I was alive. Well, I guess I was alive, but if my parents let me go, I think it would be uh, not so great. January 24th, 1989 is the day that he died. What's interesting is this, this, this crowd kind of reminds me of the scene where, where Jesus is crucified, right? The crowd putting up signs, the king of the Jews, mocking, save yourself, Jesus. You who said you could raise up the temple in three days, save yourself. It says right here in, in, in verse 35 of Luke 23, it'll be on the screen. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. There was a sense of kind of exuberation as if the great tormentor uh, or, or, or oppressor of their, uh, of their society had been caught. The great Goliath had been caught and, and he's been beheaded and they parade his head through town right? They've, they've taken down this, this big oppressor, right? This is the, the, the level of exuberation and mocking that was happening as they crucified Jesus, but Jesus was none of these things to them. Why the celebration, the mocking? They were thirsty for his blood. They were so glad that he was dying. It wasn't only him there dying on the cross. To his left and to his right hung two criminals. Those criminals joined in with the crowd. I was having a conversation with somebody about reality television, the effect of uh, watching reality television and helping that to make us feel a little bit normal. Right? Well, like I, I don't have it that bad. Uh, those, those, are, those are some crazy people. I would never do that. Right? There, there, there's a sense, they, they say the allure of, of reality television is, is it, it actually, by comparison, helps us to feel a little bit more normal. Right? When you watch people behaving oddly. And somehow these criminals, in joining in, somehow found some catharsis, hanging, being brutally executed, they're about to die, and somehow they feel a little better joining in in the scoffing and the mocking of Jesus. 
as if to say, oh man, this guy is the least popular guy here by far, uh, except number two and number three, right, right by Jesus, right? Also being made an example of for the heinous crimes that they had committed, right? Right alongside Jesus. Now I know you heard the passage and it's talking about how one criminal was mocking but the other one was not. But that actually isn't the account that we get in Matthew and Mark. Mark uh, says those who were crucified with him also reviled him. No mention of repentance. The book of Matthew says and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So is this an inconsistency? What do we think about this? So what they observed were in fact two criminals who were mocking Jesus. The ones who actually deserved to be on the cross mocking the one who certainly did not. But Luke gives us an account of what happened after the mocking. So we can now assume that both criminals were in fact joined with the crowd, but at some point before their death, one of them had a change of heart. One of them continued in their anger and hatred and mocking of the Son of God, and one recognized Jesus for who he was. He had a change of heart. We would call this regeneration. His, we, Brock just sang in the song, the heart of stone became a heart of flesh. It says that in Ezekiel, that, that God was going to take our hearts of stone and put in us a heart of flesh. That we would get new hearts, that we would be regenerated. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to be saved, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I, how does that even work? Jesus says, you don't get to understand how it works. You just got to understand it happens. That's in John 3. So this is the miracle of regeneration where the heart of, of stone becomes a heart of flesh. A heart that is an enemy of God becomes a friend of God. A heart that is opposed to God loves and follows and serves God. How does this change happen? How does it happen? This man hanging on a cross mere minutes before is now saying, remember me. Is, is, now, is now correcting the other criminal. Don't you know who this is? The process is, is, is right here. The steps of regeneration, interestingly, are right here. I think this is why Luke is, is, is giving us this account, because we need to understand this message is for us. The moment of our salvation is a moment where we are helplessly nailed to a cross, convicted of our sin, getting the death that we deserve having nothing to do with our own salvation, something happens in our heart where we believe what we did not once believe. How does that happen? 
Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is the man, we'll call him the one to the left, looking to Jesus and still, I don't know, is he, is he blaming? Is he shifting? Uh, like he's not taking personal responsibility. Like you've got, you've got the ability to do something about it. Do something about it. No, no repentance, no shame. He's still not in a place of sorrow, though he's about to die. His heart is hard. But the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? What happened? He's, hang, he's hanging here. We'll call him the guy to the right. He's hanging here, mocking Jesus. Then all of a sudden, he's rebuking the other guy. They were two peas in a pod, right? Both there for similar crimes, both joined in with the crowd and mocking Jesus. Now all of a sudden, this guy is saying, hey, whoa, you might want to reconsider your actions. You're demonstrating that you don't have any fear of God. Do you not have fear, uh, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He has this moment of realization Hey, dude, we're about to die. In the same way he's about to die, you're mocking him. I, can you take the gravity of this situation? Do you not fear God? The Bible says each man is appointed but once, but one life, and then comes the judgment. There is judgment that is coming after death. Do you not realize we're about to meet God? Do you have no fear of God? Well, he, he didn't. Romans 3, 10 through 18, this is the one maybe you know about. There's no unrighteous, no, not one, right? Talking about the condition of humanity and how all of humanity is in this desperate condition of lostness and needs to be saved, needs to be rescued. It's culminated in this collection of works that are references to the Old Testament and it ends in 318 with, they had no fear of God in their eyes. The problem with the unregenerate, unrepentant sinner is he does not fear God. No fear of God. What is the evidence of that? I'm a pretty good person. I believe God is gonna let me in. I, I've done more good things than I've done bad things. I generally believe in you know, God's love. And I think in the end, we're all in. No fear of God. No fear of the consequence, no fear of judgment. There is no fear in their eyes. This is the desperate condition of the unregenerate sinner. One of the first things that happens when your heart is changed from a heart of stone and your spiritual eyes are opened and you're being reborn when you become a Christian, you start to have an awareness of God and who he is, and that elicits appropriately fear. 
because God is a God of wrath and I'm not going all fire and brimstone, but I hope that there's wrath because when I look at people like Ted Bundy, there must be justice for the injustices in this world. Those things cannot go overlooked. They cannot go unpunished. There must be justice. We need God to be a God of justice. We need God to be a God of wrath. And there is no fear of the consequence that I might have of the actions that I've taken in my life. Well, I don't, I don't see myself as all that bad. What happens to people when they get into the presence of God? What happens when they find themselves in the presence of God? When, they, when they're confronted with just how incredibly righteous, pure, and lovely he is, what happens? Isaiah, in his account of, uh, of being in the presence of God, he says, woe is me. Like, I, I, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, when he realizes that Jesus is God in this encounter that he has and experiencing a miracle, he falls to his knees and says, Jesus, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. When we see God in all of his glory and righteousness, we start to have a fear of God because we start to have an awareness of our sin. This is the second thing, the second part, the second stage, if you will. It's not always so linear and neat and clean, but these are certainly parts of regeneration. It begins with the fear of God, but then it moves to an awareness of my own sin. In comparison to the righteousness of God, my sin is devastating. We first have to see the righteousness of God, have a fear of God, and have an awareness of, of just how awful my sin is and just how great of a punishment is in my future for my sin. Just how great of a consequence is there. The same thing happens to this criminal. We'll call him criminal on the right. He's still talking to criminal on the left. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see the comparison? He's hanging here. He's now experienced, his eyes are open to the righteousness of the man that is, is hanging beside him. And he sees by comparison that he's innocent and I'm getting exactly what I deserve as he's hanging on the cross. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. It begins with a fear of God. When we see him in his glory and in his righteousness, we have an awareness of our sin. This is the process by a person moves from unbelief to belief. 
But it doesn't just end there, and this was the problem with so much of the fire and brimstone preaching. You can't end at the judgment of God. You can't be in a place where you're moving only out of fear, some kind of life insurance to ensure that I don't get the consequence of, of, of what I deserve. It has to continue to the glory of Christ. And this is, this is what happens in the in, in, in regeneration, when a heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, you see Jesus for who he is and you glory in him. Look at, look at what, what happens in the way that he believes specifically about Jesus. Consider the Christology, the, the theological accuracy of the man on the right all of a sudden. Where did he get this? Where did, where, how did this come to his mind, this statement? There's so much theological richness here in, in verse 42. He says, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Okay, seems, seems like a simple statement. Let me unpack that a little bit, okay? First off, calls him Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. He calls on the name of Jesus as Savior, He's recognizing here at the end of his life, I need saving. Jesus is the saving one. His name means Jehovah saves. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he asking for? I want to be in. I want to be with you. And he knows that he can't get in unless he's forgiven. He's asking for forgiveness. Forgive me. Remember me. I want to be with you. Please forgive me. Why would he have the audacity to even ask this? He has an awareness of, 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 of his sin. He's saying, I deserve this. Yet he asks for mercy. See, moments later, we read this last week. It's a couple verses up. Jesus prays as his as the nails are being driven into his hands and into his feet, is being attached to the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He just saw Jesus in his moment of agony pray with a thought and concern for the ones who are killing him. And he's asking God for forgiveness for them. That's his heart, that's his concern, is that they would be forgiven. The most heinous of crimes in the history of humanity, the murder of God. And he's asking that they'd be forgiven of it. And this man on the cross says, if forgiveness can be for them, maybe forgiveness can be for me. And so he says, remember me. See, he knows that Jesus is the one that, that, that can give that forgiveness too. He doesn't say, remember me when you get to where you're going to give me a good word to the one who can forgive me. He's saying, remember me directly to Jesus because he knows, he's come to know, it's been given to him to know that Jesus is the one who can forgive. He calls on the name of Jesus for forgiveness under the authority of Jesus that all authority has been given to. 
he also recognizes that this death is not the end. It says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I like to imagine this guy on the right, and maybe both of them were, were good Jewish boys, went to Jewish school and uh, would have studied the Old Testament passage, would have known about all of the prophesy, uh, the prophecy around the Messiah and how he would bring a kingdom and rule and be king. He knew about the coming kingdom of the Messiah and he's seeing the man who is being crucified, who is about to die as that Messiah, as that king, the one who would come and rule in his kingdom. What did this man believe? He believed that Jesus was gonna rise again. He knew that this was not the end of Jesus. Amazing how much he understood about Jesus in this moment. What time did he have to do to research, to study, to contemplate, to seek advice? He's hanging there, helpless. He had no ability to do anything. But in this moment, he has this, this understanding, this recognition. Maybe he's drawn on these childhood experiences. Hey, parents of wayward kids. Maybe some of the things he heard when he was a kid that he rejected that he hated, that he rebelled against, maybe he was hearing what his parents had to say. Maybe he was listening that whole time. And in that moment, all of those things, every person that had invested in him, that trouble kid in youth group that all the youth pastors had, had been encouraging and giving him truth and pouring in the gospel and in children's ministry and, 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 and people on the street reaching out to him and handing him gospel tracts that he rejected all of his life. But in that moment, it came to mind and said, could this man be that man? What I had heard about all my life and rejected all of my life, I now believe, I believe it's him. And Jesus' response to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Saved He's saved, condemned, saved. Jesus divides the left and the right, calls us into something even higher. He's saved. Like that. If this doesn't fly in our face of a theology of righteousness by works or a works-based righteousness or in some way I can earn God's favor, I can earn God's approval, I'm generally a good person, I'm a good Christian, I read my Bible, I give, I go to church every week, I serve. And if we think in any way that this is contributing to our salvation, our acceptance, our love, our approval from God, This flies in the face of that. What opportunity did this man have to do anything good? You know what's pretty disturbing? They say that Ted Bundy accepted Christ. That he spent 10 years in prison and in that time, he, uh, he found God. We don't like that. That doesn't feel right. 
I don't know how you feel about that. I don't like that. I start to think about why. Why is that offensive? Read the names of the girls, the family members. Doesn't feel right. You know what that reveals in us though? Myself included. We think we had some part to do in why God chose us, in why God saved us. See, God chose me because I'm, 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 I'm good, I'm, I'm generally good, but if God also choose, chose Ted Bundy, that, that, that challenges my, my understanding. You guys ever heard the verse, uh, it, it's, it's misquoted a lot. Uh, my ways are higher than your ways. Uh, it's from Isaiah. Pe- people use that, it's like, yeah, no one can understand God. You know, God is mysterious. You know, his ways are higher than our ways. Can I provide some context for that? I want, I want to read that verse in context, okay? Guys, the, with the mug verses, okay? Read the whole chapter, okay? Get some context to the verses that, that, that you quote, your life verse, make sure it fits. I was at a, I was at a, a bar one time in Nashville, Tennessee, and I, I think it was, um, I think she had the verse on there. It was like Romans Five, whatever. I actually can't remember the number, but it was, um, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, or something like that. Uh, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment of her life, but I wonder if she read the entire part of that in context. That's not what I was planning on talking about. Back to Isaiah 55. Okay, context and verses. Okay. God's ways are higher than our ways. He's mysterious, right? That's not actually what, what's happening here. Isaiah 55, verse six, a couple verses earlier. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now it gets to the part where we're familiar. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's he talking about? His forgiveness isn't going to make sense. He will abundantly pardon. The ways that are higher than your ways, the thing you won't be able to understand or comprehend about God is his forgiveness. He has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy on. And if you've placed your faith in him, he's chosen to have mercy on you. And it wasn't based on anything that you did. He did it 
because he's a loving and compassionate God that's gonna blow your mind with the forgiveness that he has planned for you. So we could glory in the fact that he could save somebody like Ted Bundy, like the man on the cross in an instant without having any opportunity to do anything good because that means that's true for me. We have to get to a place where we realize we have not done anything to get God's grace, his love, his acceptance, his approval. In the moment that you placed your faith in him was the most loved you'll ever be. You'll never be more loved than that moment. And that's not, that's not to say that God's love stopped in that moment and it's been in a decline. It's like he gave you everything in that moment. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You have everything. And it wasn't based on anything you do. The problem is, what about justice? What about justice? That's not fair. It was punished. Ted Bundy's sin was punished brutally. 40 lashes minus one. Crown of thorns. A mocking robe. Garments divided. Nails pierced, gasping for air, side pierced, blood and water. It was paid for. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And what is being offered to us is, is new life that today we could be in, in paradise with him. We don't know when that moment is. So if you're not, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, now is the time. It could be today. If you have, guys, this should be an encouragement for you, okay? If you are a Christian, this should be an encouragement for you. Number one, God can save you, his Atoning work on the cross covers all of your sin, past, present, and future that should give you a new mind about obedience. Talk to me about that if, if, if you want to understand how that works. But guys, in evangelism, is there anybody God can't reach? Do you have a child that's, that's wayward? Do you have a friend who refuses to believe, a, a loved one, a relative, a neighbor, a coworker? Is there anyone that God cannot reach? What did this man do with his newfound belief? He became an evangelist right there in that moment. Hey, bud, do you not fear God? We're sinners here. We deserve death. This is Jesus. He's perfect and he can save. His dying breath was spent evangelizing. I believe, therefore, I speak. Paul says. It's the same thing God calls us to. I believe, therefore I speak. Who is out there that God cannot save? Share the good news of the gospel. We get to participate in this every week. I'm going to invite uh, ushers to come forward with uh, communion. 
Um, I'm gonna pray here in just a second, but we get, we get to celebrate this every single week, the truth of the gospel, his, his body broken for us, his blood spilled. We get to celebrate his receiving of the wrath of God as a payment, a penalty for our sin. And all we've gotta do is fear God, see our sin, ask for forgiveness, see the glory of Jesus, and we can have new life too. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you.